Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode 16 of Speaking the Truth with your host, Anthony Brown. Today's episode of Speaking the Truth is brought to you by Associates Life Coaching and Counseling. If you're feeling blue and don't know what to do, call Anthony Brown and he will help you. Go to www.associateslifecoachingandcounseling.com. Or call us at 281-545-5003. Today's episode is also brought to you by Anyone Can Travel. If you are looking to travel domestically or around the world, go to anyone can, can travel at gmail.com or contact David Weedfall at... 832-577-1735. Also, if you want to get into business and be a travel, or sell travel, rather, uh, contact David. We talk free fall at 832-577-1735, or you, you can email him at anyone can travel at gmail.com. That's any, the number one, can travel at gmail.com. So, Today, I'm recording this episode. It's going to air uh, Saturday. Uh, I will be on my way to Chicago. I'll probably be in the, uh, the plane by the time this is released. But it's going to. But today is April the 4th when I'm actually recording this episode. And it is Maya Angelou's 90th birthday. And I would like to honor Maya Angelou by displaying her poem, Still I rise. You may write me down in history with your bitter twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust, I'll rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Just cause I walk as if I have oil wells pumping in my living room. <laughs> Just like moons and like suns with the certainty of tides, just like hope springing high, still I rise. Did you want to see me broken, bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries? Does my sassiness upset you? <laughs> Don't take it so hard just because I laugh as if I have gold mines digging in my own backyard. You can shoot me with your words. You can cut me with your lies. You can kill me with your hatefulness. But just like life, I rise. Does my sexiness offend you? Oh. <laughs> Does it come as a surprise that I dance? as if I have diamonds at the meeting of my thighs. <laughs> Out 
of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past rooted in pain, I rise. A black ocean leaping and wide, welling and swelling and bearing in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak miraculously clear, I rise. Bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave, I am the hope and the dream of the slave. And so, It would have been Dr. Maya Angelou's 90th birthday today. Dr. Maya Angelou died May 28th, 2004, 2014 in Wisdom, Salem, North Carolina. Also, today is the 50th anniversary of the death of Dr. Martin Luther King. Now, I would love to have uh, to uh, display one of his great speeches. However, it's alleged that if you caught displaying one of Dr. King's speeches that you may get sued by uh, one of his children or the King Foundation. So we're going to uh, not go there with uh, uh, and displaying one of Dr. King's great speeches and just remember him for the great man that he was. Also on today, we received the news of the death of Winnie Mandela. Winnie Mandela actually died on April 2nd of 2018. She was a South African anti-apartheid activist and a politician and the ex-wife of Nelson Mandela. She served as a member of parliament from 1994 to 2003 and from 2009 until her death, and was a deputy minister from 1994 to 1996. A member of the African National Congress, ANC for short, political party, she served on the ANC's National Executive Committee and headed its Women's League. Winnie Mandela was known to her supporters as the mother of the nation. Born to the Exhosa family in Bizana and a qualified social worker, Winnie Mandela married anti-apartheid activist Nelson Mandela in Johannesburg in 1958. They remained married for 38 years and had two children together. In 1963, after Mandela was imprisoned from the Rivana trial, she became his public face during the 27 years he spent in jail. During that period, she rose to a prominence with the domestic anti-apartheid movement. She was detained by apartheid state security services on various occasions, tortured, subjected to banning orders, banished to a rural town, and spent several months in solitary confinement. In the mid-1980s, Winnie Mandela exerted a reign of terror in Soweto, which led to condemnation by anti-apartheid movement in South Africa and a rebuke by the ANC in exile. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission established by Nelson Mandela government to investigate human rights abuses found Winnie Mandela to have been politically and morally accountable for the gross violations of human rights committed by the Mandela United Football Club, her security detail. 
Winnie Mandela endorsed the necklacing of alleged police informers and apartheid government and collaborators, and her security detail carried out the kidnapping, torture, and murder of such individuals, more notoriously, of a 14-year-old Stompy Marquetesi. Nelson Mandela was released from prison on 11, uh, February 11, 1990, and the couple separated in 1992. Their divorce was finalized in March 1996. They remained in contact as she visited him when he was ill later in life. As a senior ANC figure, she took part of the post-apartheid ANC government. Although she was dismissed from the, her post and amid allegations of corruption, in 2003, she was convinced, convicted rather, of theft and fraud. She temporarily retreated from active political involvement before returning several years later. Winnie Mandela, the former wife of Nelson Mandela, spent years in the public eye as an anti-apartheid campaigner. My husband has been fighting for the liberation of the African people, for the working harmoniously of all the racial groups in this country. She'd been suffering from a long illness, for which she spent much of this year in and out of hospital. She was revered and controversial in equal measure. You have been gathered here since this morning as testimony of the failure of our government. Pretoria has failed to rule our country. During her husband's 27-year imprisonment on Robben Island, Winnie played a crucial role in directing the anti-apartheid struggle. In 1990, Nelson Mandela was freed, and the world watched as the duo walked out of prison hand in hand. But by the end of the next year, Winnie was found guilty and fined for her involvement in the kidnapping of four Suete schoolchildren and the killing of a boy known as Stompy by her team of bodyguards. The necklacing method in which he was burnt to death with petrol-filled tires horrified South Africans. In 1992, allegations of corruption and mismanagement forced her out of all executive positions in the ANC. But shortly after, she was appointed as culture minister in Mandela's unity government. She was sacked a year later for insubordination, but kept her position as a member of parliament and head of the Women's League. Her marriage to Mandela ended in 1996. Winnie, however, remained a strong figure in South Africa's social and political circles. The reality we see out there, um, I think our worst problem today is crime. And of course, what goes hand in hand with that is the poverty of our people. Um, we are far from uh, fighting the battle of poverty. In fact, the next revolution in this country is a revolution against the poverty of our people. Although she faced controversy in the latter parts of her life, for millions of South Africans, Winnie Mandela holds a special place for her brave fight against discrimination and for equality. To relieve uh, this struggle a hundred times more, if at the end of it I would achieve precisely what we achieved as the African National Congress, the liberation of South Africa, the liberation of my people. Winnie Mandela was 81. Winnie Mandela.
a South African legend. Also, this month is um, the anniversary of my brother's death and his birthday, the same month. And when I think of my brother Reginald, um, what comes to mind is a cartoon that I saw recently called uh, Zootopia. And in Zootopia, is a story about a uh, bunny rabbit who, uh, a small, short bunny rabbit who is in, who becomes, it's a cartoon, who becomes a police officer. And in this movie, there are all different types of animals, uh, different sizes, different shapes, and some very small and some very large. Well, uh, this bunny rabbit was, became a police officer and she was discriminated against because of her short size and stature and wasn't given uh, the job that she felt that she qualified for. So she had to prove herself that she could solve a murder or a kidnapping, rather, of a missing person. And from that investigation, um, it determined that certain animals that were considered predators were were dangerous and these predators were discriminated against for no reason or because of fear because they were different. And that made me think about my brother Reggie who was often um, discriminated against because he was different because he lived his life a little differently than the status quo he may have talked differently from the status quo. He may have walked differently, but he was doing a time where it was not popular to be himself and to live his life. He still lived his life the way he wanted to live his life. And we loved him for him. And through in honor of him and ironically I came across uh, the guest that I'm going to um, interview uh, in reference to his book that he's written uh, and to my surprise I found out he's not just an author he's a playwright he's written five different plays uh, and he's written a book. And this book subject is basically about the intersectionality of race, religion, and human identity. And this particular interview, to my surprise, really touched on a lot of topics that may be uncomfortable for some people to listen to, especially if they're the Mind is not as open, but I want to challenge you to listen to the interview and listen to where he's coming from and and, and live in life through his eyes and listen to this book and listen to his story through his lenses as he
he discusses the intersectionality of race, religion, and human identity. Okay, today on Speaking the Truth, I'll be uh, speaking to interviewing uh, Tariq Daniels, who is an uh, author who's reading uh, a book called, uh, called uh, No Bound So Strong. How are you doing, Tariq? I'm doing great today. Okay, okay uh, thanks for uh, talking to me today. Um, tell me a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, and things of that nature. Okay. Um, as you stated, my name is Tyrese Daniels. Um, I was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. Um, went to school in um, Ohio at Bowling Green State University. You know, lived a couple of years in Atlanta and relocated to the Austin, Texas area in 2012. Okay. Okay. How, how do you like in Austin? Um, I like Austin. You know, um, it's a moving, shaking type of city. And um, very artsy, and so it's been very welcoming to do my art here. Okay, okay, okay. Um, so you've written a book that's that's soon to be released, correct? Correct. Okay, when will we be released? Uh, the book will be out April twenty seventh. Um, okay, out okay. right now. Okay, okay. So without um, giving too much information, can you uh, let us know briefly what the book is about? Okay, so No Bond So Strong is a coming-of-age drama um, loosely based on stories that I know growing up in Detroit, Michigan, and being like an openly queer black youth and, you know, really the survival. So it's about four friends and their friendship and their dependency on each other, you know, to make it, you know, to go to that new step, that next mm -hmm. step in life, mm -hmm. and different consequences and, um, you know, trials and tribulations that comes along with that. Okay, okay, okay. Is this book, any of this book, uh, uh, is it fiction or nonfiction? It is fiction. Okay. You know, I like to call it uh, my love story to Detroit, you know, my hometown. Okay, okay. okay. So is anything of the book, um, I guess, about your story or about uh, any characters, um uh, Remind yourself of any part of you in the book? Well, I think all of me is in the book. Um, I can identify with all the characters. You know, it's four principal characters, four friends. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it does remind me of my friendships growing up in um, Detroit. You know, we rely heavily on each other. Um, I, I spent more time with my friends than I did with my family. You know, they okay. were like my family. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah I've, often, I've often heard that your friends are your the family that you choose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's definitely true. Okay. Is this your first book? Yeah, this is actually my first book. Uh, I've written um, four or five plays now, mm -hmm. and I'm producing here in Austin and trying to get them produced across the country. So I decided that I wanted to write my first novel. So yeah. Okay. 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 So what um what gave you what influenced you to write the book? Well was um kinda always in my, my five year plan. Like when I first really got serious about producing plays, you know, I always said that, you know, I wanted to definitely write a book. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, as I continue to, you know, I'm a avid reader myself. 
And what I ran into a lot of times is, you know, finding a lot of literature, you know, that identified, you know, my life, you know, identified how I grew up and different things like that. And so I was always planning to definitely write a body of work that kind of reflected my personal experience or what it felt like for me, you know, growing up and being, you know, openly queer black mm-hmm. man here. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Okay. Okay. Now, playwriting and writing a novel is is, is different. Uh, I've written, I've read actually uh, several books from another author who did playwriting first, uh, and it, and I find those those type of authors very interesting because they're more, I guess, explicit with the way that they write the book. Because uh, because play is a lot. When you do playwriting, from my understanding, there's a lot involved in writing a script versus when writing a book. Do you think that um, writing scripts and come from writing scripts to writing a book, did that, uh, do you think that was beneficial in any type of way? I think my style of writing is very dialogue heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I've always kind of written. So I guess I'm kind of backwards. You know, I've always been told as a playwright that I was like a very, you know, dialogue-heavy playwright. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like it was a lot easier to write a book, per se, than it has been um, to write a play. Because mm-hmm. you have to get all that dialogue to, you know, you know, in a play, every word has to mean something. And every sentence has to lead to the next action. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's no room to over-explain or not explain enough. You know, everything has to have an attention. Mm-hmm. Where in a book, you know, you can really decide to tell as much of one thing that, that you want more so than maybe another point that you want to make. Mm-hmm. And so I definitely felt like playwriting is a little bit, it can be a lot more difficult and um, in action-wise, you know, and reflecting your words into live theater. Versus, you know, being able to have more room to really go into different details in a book. Okay. So, okay. Um, I definitely think it helps. Yeah. Okay. Um, so no bounds so strong. What does the title mean to you? Well, the title is actually from a quote from Harriet Ann Jacobs. Um it's actually the, the whole quote is, no bond so strong that those that are created from those that are suffering together. Hmm. And, you know, when I reflect on the book and these four friends, you know, a lot of their connection was the suffering. You know, the lack of having a father, you know, the lack of, you know, resources that, you know, come from living in the inner city, the lack of acceptance and the lack of guidance. So when you have all those things, sometimes, you know, the, you know, the best bonds are created amongst people who can identify with each other. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I love Harriet Ann Jacobs, her story. You know, she was a, a slave who wrote her memoir, autobiography. And, you know, she has, you know, quite a few quotes. And that one always stood out to me. Mm-hmm. And I knew that that was the, uh, you know, I, I knew a long time ago if I ever wrote a book about, you know, friendship, that that would have been my title because that's such a, you know, powerful, you know, quote, you know, and it's so real. 
because I do believe that we do we do identify when we are suffering the most with each other. So I, what I hear you saying, you correct me if I'm wrong, is that no matter how much we suffer as a people, by being in community with one another is the way we overcome our suffering. Well, definitely. I think that's where the ideas or the, I mean, if we just take the Black Lives you know, Matter movement, you know, the mm-hmm. whole point of it and why, you know, black people come together is we identify with the struggle or we identify the, you know, scare that we can be next to be shot and unarmed. So when you, you know, when you're a group of people and you identify these struggles, you come up with ways to get out, you know, or you mm-hmm. come up with ways to, you know, make things better and, you know, march and protest, and, and, you know. And so definitely when you're actually going through those things is where I feel like human nature, you want to do more to get out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to go and identify with others who's going through it with you. Okay. So uh, I know you shared where the title came from, uh, but this question is a little different. Which came first, the book or the title? I know that you, in terms of you deciding on that was going to be your title, which came first? Um, well, the book, I already knew what the book was going to be. So are you meaning like before I wrote the book, did I have the title or did I title it after I wrote the book? Right. Did you have the title in mind when you wrote the book or did you, did you decide on the title after you wrote the book? I had the title in mind when I wrote the book because um, I definitely knew what the story was going to be. Now, mm-hmm. you know, I definitely went, you know, I told a lot of different stories amongst this friendship, but I kind of knew what I wanted, you know, people to get out of this book. And so, No Bond So Strong was definitely, um, when I sat down, you know, to tell this story, that was what I had in mind from the very beginning. Okay, okay. Now, in the mind of a writer, what, how do you sit down and, and, and write a book? What, what's, what's your method? Well, um, to, to write a book or to write a play, I, I, I like to fantasize. Like, I, I daydream a lot. I um, doodle a lot. And so before I ever began to, like, really start typing or start writing, I, I create these stories in my head. I, mm-hmm. I fantasize and, and think of the, the life that I'm going to write about before I even begin to write about it, you know. And so... I tell the, I like to fantasize, you know, mm-hmm. and so through fantasizing, that's how I'll be able to develop, you know, characters and develop, you know, scenes and develop, you know, where I want the story to go. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really big on dreaming and fantasizing and, and, and creating stories in my head. So it's, it's easier that way for me. So I don't, mm-hmm. so I, I, I have the story before I actually write the story in my mind. So, as a writer, have you ever experienced writer's block? All the time. Um, I've actually been writing this book off and on for five years. Okay. And um, in between, of course, like I said, I was writing plays. But, and especially when you're writing something that's kind of, like, really close to you, that mm-hmm. means so much to you, sometimes it, it, it's too much. Mm-hmm. And then your brain and your body does shut down. Like you have to remove yourself from the project. 
So, you know, throughout the book, writing the book, it's been plenty of times I had to just stop writing for months at a time. Mm-hmm. And then I had to, um, you know, get back to all over again, that fantasizing place and um, get back to the story I wanted to tell because my brain just wasn't there. And so writer's block is, is definitely a real thing, definitely. Okay, okay. Um What what um if there if you could think of a, a major theme of the book, uh I know you told me a snippet of what the book is basically basically about. If you if there is a major takeaway that you want would want someone to take away from this book, what would that be? Um, I you know, one of the questions, you know, during this whole process of me um promoting the book is I like to ask is who's protecting our black gay youth. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the biggest takeaway that I want people to get from the book because what it does for me is it gives me a platform to kind of show people what our black gay youth is going through. You know, what me and my friends went through or people I knew that went through or, you know, even what we're going through now and who's protecting them. You know, you know when when you can't go home when you don't have, you know, the absence of the black father, you know, when you're being, you know, mistreated or, you know, discriminated because of who you are and your, you know, sexual identity, who can these people turn to? Who can these youth turn to? You know, and a lot of times we got black gay youth going through homelessness, you know, participating in the drug culture. And uh, we definitely know about the HIV STD, you know, epidemic that um, that our black youth goes through, and and we're losing our black youth, you know. And so that's the biggest takeaway: who's protecting our youth, and who's protecting our black gay youth, especially. Now, the um, the church has always been in the center of of the African American culture, uh, especially in the South, what role, if any, do you think the church uh, plays in all that? Well, I definitely think the role that they play. I mean, and that's such a loaded question, so I'm gonna try okay. to like keep it um, definitely on the you know, in terms of the book. Okay. And when I think about my experiences in in church and what I still see in church is the idea of, you know, almost like a don't ask, don't tell policy. Mm-hmm. And we know very well that church is full of, you know, black gay youth or, you know, black gay people, period. And it's all it's kind of this, you know, don't ask, don't tell. We don't talk about it. We don't acknowledge it. So it kind of perpetuates the same, you know, um, stigma around being, you know, being able to live in your own truth. And been able to, you know, be a, you know, how can our gay youth, you know, learn to rely on God for protection when the church doesn't give you the avenue, you know? So mm-hmm. the church is continue, continuously, historically, you know, persecuting someone for their sexual identity, then that's automatically not giving them that outlet to be free. You know, again, they're continuing to be in the closet per se, you know, even being in, you know, in a choir stand, in the Bible study and things mm-hmm. like that, you know, 
I think the church needs to be a little bit more, in my opinion, open about who's in your church and who who are you trying to save. You know, mm-hmm. you can't if you're really trying to save people's souls directly, then you need to acknowledge them directly and not just through persecution. You know, <laughs> and so. So where does a black gay youth, where do they go to um, to find safety and solace and wholeness? <laughs> that's the question. And I, I can honestly say I don't have an answer to that. And okay. that's kind of what what I'm trying to get people to, to see. You okay. know, I mean, I'm not saying, you know, you know of course every major city has their, you know, youth centers, you know, LGBTQ centers and things like that. And sometimes they apply to the black communities and sometimes they don't. You know, mm. a lot of black youth maybe maybe not identify or don't think that that's where they belong. Um, I know the ballroom culture is a big thing that, you know, is an outlet for our, you know, minority youth here in the, in the country definitely was a big thing for me growing up. And there's a lot of positives with that. You know, a lot of people like to focus on the negatives in the ballroom culture, but, you know, they have given a lot of black youth opportunities to express themselves creatively, you know, for years. Okay. Can, can you explain to the listeners what the ballroom culture is all about? Well, the, the ballroom culture is definitely um, a sub, culture created, well, I wouldn't say created, but, you know, really got its movement back in the 80s and the early 90s, you know, out of New York, where basically what I'm talking about in this book, you know, black youth didn't have anywhere to go. You know, a lot of them were put out of their homes and things like that. And, you know, the older black gays in the communities and drag mothers and things created houses, you know, to become you know, parental figures or, you know, mentors to the black youth in the community. And so when you say houses, are you talking about physical houses? No, no, not physical houses. I guess that wasn't a good description. Basically a family. Okay. You know, these become like your gay family, like we were saying earlier. Like um, it might not be your biological family that you identify with. You end up um, meeting people that mentor you as a gay mother and a gay father and then you know, that community becomes like your, you know, your house, your gay family. And through this, and you know, black people in general are, are creative geniuses, you know, we, you know, so we're voguing and, you know, and, and runway and, you know, creating costumes and drag and all of that was something that came out of the, you know, the ballroom culture and competition mm-hmm. and just, you know, and it was very underground, you know, most of the things didn't happen until two in the morning because again, you know, I think about the eighties and the nineties and, you know, the safety of, you know, black gays in New York and things like that. So for me in Detroit, you know, at an early age, at 14 years old, I, you know, went to my first ball and, you know, and met my first gay father and, gay house and they became my family mm-hmm. and I was able to look up to them so I mean that's definitely something that's out there okay okay so 
my next question is, okay, say for example, okay, what can a group of people that are that don't identify themselves as being queer or gay, how, what could they, what could be the, what could they get out of your out of your book, or is it specifically written for the queer gay community? Well, it, it, it's not specifically. Well, okay, yes, yes, it is. And so that is my um, thing: is that it is a black mm-hmm. queer literature for mm-hmm. us by us. Okay. So what that means, and that's everything else that's for us by us. You know, you always wanted to to cross, you know, gender lines and color lines. And what I think to the um, you know, the cisgender male and the cisgender, you know, female and um, is that I want them to I be able to understand, you know, begin to simplify. Um, I'm about to say simplifies, but be able to understand and identify what's going on in this idea of intersectionality, mm-hmm. of what you know, uh, what it means to be, you know, black and queer in America. Because I okay. think once people learn and and and, and see stories they get a better, you know, empathy towards the struggle and maybe be able to be an ally to make things change. You know, you can't really fault some people for their ignorance if they're not aware of what's going on. Okay. And so so for those of you that are listening, uh, when he mentioned cisgender, because I just found out what that was a month ago, uh, cisgender is someone that is born male or someone that is born a female, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Right, and they identify as male. As a, as a male or a female versus someone that's trans, correct? Right, yes. And, okay. and so I guess I should say cisgender straight male and cisgender okay. straight female, black, white, Asian, you know, okay. um, everybody. And And so the more they know the more they can understand and the more they understand, the more they can empathize and the more they empathize, the more they become an ally to make things better for um, the privilege that they might have for the ones that don't have it. A few weeks ago, I interviewed uh, the founder of the Black Lives Matter movement in Houston, and you had mentioned the Black Lives Matter movement uh, earlier. And one thing that he... uh, educated me on was that the Black Lives Matter movement was founded by two uh, lesbian women. I think three, well, I, I believe it was two lesbian women. Three women, I think at least one or two of them were, were, were queer. Um, in your opinion, does the Black Lives Matter movement include uh, queer youth? And so that's another loaded question. Okay. I'm going to give you the my most simple answer and then give okay. a little bit of reason why. Okay. And I would say no. Um, I have a preface in the book, and it's entitled um, Dear Afro-Queer. And it really directly um, is a letter that I wrote personally to the Afro-queer readers of the book or in, in, in America is to, it's almost a call to action to start addressing the issue that I have with 
not necessarily just the Black Lives Matter movement. I know we use that. I, I use that word really um, loosely. So when I'm when I'm stating, I'm not specifying that particular movement, and you know, directly. I mean mm-hmm. the whole call of movement for the Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And what it is, I, I definitely think, um, from my own experiences, that it is not as inclusive as it should be, you know, because going back mm-hmm. to where I made the statement about cisgender, you know, straight woman and cisgender straight male, some and, and I'm specifically talking about black people at this point, somewhere along the line, it's a division among um, being queer in this movement. Um, I, I can go down on my Facebook and watch the reaction to my straight black friends and, and, and male or female towards, you know, an article about a transgender being murdered and, and the lack of the action of call, you know, or, you know, an article. It was a recent article about the, the guy who beat his son to death, you know, because he was gay. And and it was one of those articles that kind of was on Facebook and it went viral. So it was like thousands of comments. And if you just listen to and read some of the comments from the straight black man about, you know, I would do that to my son. You know, I wouldn't have a gay son. And, and, and where we are in 2018 and how blacks in general still look at what what it is to be gay and transgender in America is mm-hmm. mind blowing to me. It is ridiculous. Um, I feel like the only thing that they appreciate the gay for is the culture. Mm-hmm. They don't mind stealing black gay culture, but I don't believe that they mind being on the front, you know, the front lines to defend black gay lives. You know, and I just don't see it. And if I if it is there, it's not there enough for me as a black gay man to be comfortable to believe that my straight black man and women allies is out here for my life as well and my intersectionality of being queer and black. Okay, now I get your book. Now that you're, you're talking about it, the book is the intersection of being gay and black and the struggles that they have, that the characters are having for being both black and both gay. Well, I mean, to them, they're just being living their life. Okay. Um, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't think I've ever, I, I didn't know that I was in the struggle as much as I knew that I was in the struggle when I got out, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, because everybody always tell me all the time, you grew up in Detroit? I'm like, you know, and yes, I knew it was bad. It was bad, but you didn't know how bad it was until, you know, I went to college. It was like, oh, my God, I was living in a war zone, you know? Okay. So to, to take so, us there, for those of us that are not from Detroit, that's from, you know, small town or from the south, and all the thing we know about Detroit is that they have factories there or that there was Music City. Take us back to Detroit. Describe Detroit. Uh, how did it growing up in Detroit? Um, for me, growing up in Detroit, I mean, I was I'm from the hood. You know, it was definitely an all black city, an all impoverished city. My family was impoverished. Um, I'm from a single parent family home. I mean, I did have a stepfather, 
um, my whole life and, and, you know, and growing up and one of the things that I, you know, explore now is being able to be comfortably say that, you know, that I suffered physical abuse for my stepfather for well over a decade just because I was gay. And, um, and so, you know, drugs was everywhere in, mm-hmm. in the city of Detroit. You know, my grandmother used to tell me all the time about, I like, once the crack ep- epidemic hit Detroit in the eighties, the city never recovered, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, abandoned buildings and, you know, but I mean, it, it, it was a black city, you know, and what we know about a black city, you know, violence and, you know, you have to be careful, you know, where you go. Like, even when I go back to Detroit now, I, I, um, I feel out of place sometimes because I know, you know, I'm looking at, now I'm looked at as an outsider, you mm-hmm. know, and outsiders, you have to be careful when you go into, you know, inner cities where you don't know who's, you know, where you're supposed to go and where you're not supposed to go, you know. Mm-hmm. But it was mm-hmm. that kind of life, you know, um, and being, you know, and we were, we were, I was out, you know, I was in the streets. I mean, I, I had a home, you know, I wasn't necessarily in the streets. You know, I had a curfew if I decided to go by it. Um, but it was, it's a busy city. It's a, it's a inner city, you know, a black music city, you know, family, you know, my family, all my family is from there. But, um, and Detroit is what most people think of it as, and growing up there, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. I didn't know, you know, that you could be more safe, you know? Mm-hmm. I didn't know. So being unsafe was your norm. Right, right. That was normal, you know? You know, the idea that you can get robbed. You know, I was robbed. I, 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 I was robbed probably three, four times in high school. Gunpoint. You know, um, I had to walk home with no shoes on, you know, and, you know, 10 feet of snow, you know. And so, I mean, that was what I knew, you know, growing up in the city. Coming from that environment, someone can easily, uh, and and, and I'm a mental health counselor, so I'm coming from, but someone could easily be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress syndrome. Um, I, I, definitely, I would say that as to, you know, and I don't like to minimize that because we're definitely, you know, taking PTSD to another level by, you know, getting it out of just the, what we know as the war zone or military mm-hmm. into definitely, mm-hmm. you know, inner city life. And so I don't want to be the one that feel like I'm minimizing what PTSD mm-hmm. can be, you know, for those in the armed services, but... I do love the fact that we are expanding on what PTS, you know, PTSD is. Mm-hmm, but I do think, you know, um, growing up in that, I, it, it has to take a toll, you know. And I feel like some people can get out of it and, and live healthy lives. I think others, is, is, they will never be able to recover, mm-hmm. you know, um, from that upbringing and that kind of um war zone to a certain degree, you know? Mm-hmm. I definitely think it's a form. You know, like what's going on in Chicago, I mean, you can't say that's not, you know, people everybody out of that that's going through that is gonna make it out and not be able to, 
deal with that mentally for the rest of their lives, you know? Your book is uh is your book self published? It is self published. Um I'm working with the editor here in Austin and um so yeah, so it's it is self published. What are some of the benefits and some of the drawbacks from self publishing in your opinion? Um, well I mean this is new for me, so I only know the self publishing. Mm-hmm. I know for um even in my playwriting I, I'm more into just telling my story and the whole idea of having to sell my story versus in to, versus in being able to tell my story, mm-hmm. I prefer that. Um, I, don't, I don't like to get caught up in the other stuff. So, so far, it's been just the idea of me being able just to present my art, like if I was a you know a graphic artist, you know a visual artist, or things like that, you know, we typically, you know, if you're doing music or being a writer, you, you want some kind of backing for somebody else to say that your your story is good enough or your music is good enough. And I think this day and age, you have to take the ownership of your art and then you become more attached to it when you actually have to present it to the world on your own. And so, mm-hmm. of course, it's a lot more work. But I think the touch in a personal um, journey with your art is is definitely more rewarding. Okay, okay. Now, you said you had five plays, correct? Correct. Okay. I've written five plays. I haven't produced all five yet. I have two that that's written. I just, you know, I'm focusing on the book right now, though. Okay. So... Do you have a favorite work between your book and your five plays? Is any of those your favorite works? Wow, that's a good question. I guess the most that I will identify with is my first play that I I thought it would be between the book and the first play that I wrote, The Counseling Session, which dealt with um, a young black man in college who was suffering, you know, from different mental illnesses because of his issues with his family and, you know, and he got his heart broken by his first, you know, his roommate, which was his first love, and, you know, and, and went on this whole spiral and then had to, you know, was court-ordered to, you know, seek therapy. And so um, that play was, it was always person it was my like it was like my baby it was the first one was that play out recently maybe like a year or so ago um i produced it in 15 yeah 15 okay 15, okay yeah and it, and it ran in austin yes okay okay i think i was invited to to attend one because it sounds so familiar it sounds like the same play that i was invited to that i get i didn't get a chance to uh, attend in, in austin yeah. Okay. I've heard of that play. Okay. Yeah. And I definitely okay. want to bring it to Houston. So, uh, you know, that's where, you know, as a writer, you have to stop writing sometimes and mm-hmm. try to go on back to the, what we were just talking about, get your work out there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so definitely would love to 
start, you know, taking my show different places. Okay. Well, there's definitely a following here. There's definitely a following here that, that, will, that would uh, love to uh, to support your play. Uh, there's, there's a lot of there's a a big community of the arts that's here. So, so yeah, I, I think that this is a good, it will be a good place to uh, bring that play. When we return, we will hear Tariq Daniels to read a section of his book, No Bonds, So Strong. letter to you with a heavy heart about the fear that runs deep in all of us who are black and queer in America. As black people, we are bonded through hundreds of years of colonization on the continent of Africa and the systematic oppression of slavery in Africa. We are rooted in Jim Crow laws of the South as well as segregation of our blackness from our Anglo-whiteness. We are black, we are Afro. Somewhere along the line, our queerness removed us from the bond that has been running through our blood for centuries. That same bond that has been passed down from generation into a new place of double oppression. Our own people have turned their backs on us. The cisgendered black man and the black woman have declared war on the Afro-queer. Somewhere along this journey, being queer has become a burden in the light of justice amongst our people, even though queerness has always been at the front lines of every major fight for justice and equality. Somewhere along our path, it became okay for our black brothers and sisters to look down on us and treat us as though we are subhuman because of our queerness. The war has been very loud with homophobic behaviors and teachings against us. And the war has been very silent as our former allies refuse to speak out against these homophobic behaviors and teachings. The blood is on their hands because they have allowed the mistreatment and murders of our black transgender sisters and brothers all while they remain silent. I ask that you take a stand and not continue to fall victim to this reverse homophobic agenda from the black liberation movement who seek to attack the whiteness within the LGBT community, but doesn't show praise towards blackness within the same community. It's nothing more than just a distraction from the real truth. Demand change in your community and with your family and friends. Use the few allies that we do have and let the cisgender black people across the nation know enough is enough. It's not about being radical. It's about being right. And due to our intersectionality of race, religion, and human sexual identity, we must seek justice and equality in all facets of our lives. We are black, we are queer, we are Afro-queer. So, uh, Tariq, I want to thank you for uh, interviewing me this interview. I've learned a lot, some things, and it's going in a, in a totally different direction that I thought it would go, would go into, and I really appreciate you talking to me and sharing your book and your story, and uh, I wish you well. Thanks, thanks, man. Um, thanks for having me, and thanks for uh, giving me the opportunity and the platform to, you know, tell
tell the story. And that's all I'm okay. trying to do is tell the story. Okay, when you, so when your book is going to be available, you said April the 20th, correct? April 27th. Okay, okay, where if someone wants to know more about your book or find your book, where, where can they uh, get more information? They can find it on my website, uh, which is www.mrtelltales.com. And that's M-I-S-T-E-R-T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S.com. Mr. Telltales. Okay. So there you have it, Tariq Daniels, playwright and author of No Bonds So Strong. Thank you very much. Thank you. You have been listening to Speaking the Truth with your host, Anthony Brown. You can... Listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Deezer, Google Play, Our Heart, Radio Public, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Votto, and now on Blog Talk Radio. If you have any questions about mental health, feel free to write into the show, Dear Anthony, and ask a question and I'll read it on the air if appropriate. That's Dear Anthony at speakingthetruth.ab at gmail.com. You can write the show at speakingthetruth.ab at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite medium and comment and let us know. To become a patron of the show, please go to our Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash speakofthetruth slash creators. That's www.patreon.com slash speakofthetruth slash creators. You can become a patron for as little as $1 a month. Also, if you don't live in Houston and you need some quick advice about something or some quick coaching, go to www.instantgo.com. That's www.instantgo.com slash Anthony W-A-Y-N-E-B-R-O-W. That's www.instantgo.com slash A-N-T-H-O-N-Y-W-A-Y-N-E-B-R-O-W. You can contact me via text, voice, or video. Terrace Willa apply. Thank you for listening to episode 16 of Speaking the Truth. And we'll speak next week. <laughs>